And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. So I just want to say that I, I live and work on the traditional land of the Coast Salish people past and present. And I'd like to honor with a lot of gratitude the land itself and the Coast Salish people who have stewarded it throughout the generations and continue to do so today. The land acknowledgement that I'm about to give is adapted by a land acknowledgement shared with me by Ernstine Heldring, who worked with various people from the Lenape tribe in order to craft a living land acknowledgement. So I'm currently on the lands of the Canaries, an Algonquin people speaking Munsee, who called this land Lenapoking, land of the people. And here's a little bit about the Delaware Lenape people. By the way, I'm in New York City, so fun facts. Uh, They were displaced mostly in the 1600s. Today, many Delaware Lenape people live in Oklahoma. From the latest census report, which was done in 2020, 180,866 people between NYC's five boroughs identify as Native American or Alaska Native, according to the city newspaper. And Native and Indigenous people are still here in New York City and are responsible for trade, commerce, many of the place names that we now have, and more, and continue to make meaningful contributions to this land. Oh, am I starting? Hello and welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I'm Harmony. And this week we are talking about land, back, and indigenous anarchism, which are two very important and very exciting topics. Harmony has pulled some really fun articles for us to talk about relating to these. We've got an excerpt from a memoir to talk about. It's going to be a good time all around. I'm sorry, I don't have a serious bone in my body. Harmony's like laughing at me as I'm doing this introduction. I'm just here to have a good time, man. Not even for a long time, but it's going to be good. Yeah, usually I, I do the introductions and today I decided to trip Maggie up. Yeah, just okay. stay silent. <laughs> just well, the problem, silent. the problem is that when I do the introduction, I have to consciously sit here and make sure that I say an I'm Maggie and not an I'm Harmony because that's <laughs> what I think the intro is. So, yes, I understand. Yeah, Maggie gets tripped up with the intro quite frequently, but she's still smart, I promise. Anyway, yeah, today we're talking about Indigenous anarchism, and this episode should be airing around Thanksgiving time, so it was important to Maggie and I, because we're looking at leftist texts this season, to start thinking about active ways in which we could decolonize our societal structures, and a good way to do that, I think, is through Indigenous anarchism. So we've read a few texts that we're linking in the show notes, and the first one is freely accessible through the Anarchist Library, and it's by Aragorn, and was published in 2005 in 
Green Anarchy, issue 19. Very nice. Yes, so it's called Locating an Indigenous Anarchism, and this kind of gives us a good definition for what Indigenous anarchism is, and Aragorn also gives us some principles that they think Indigenous anarchism would follow. Maggie, what were your first ideas and thoughts coming from this text? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. So I guess full disclosure, I think that I broadly agree with ideas of anarchism in general, but Harmony's done a lot more research on what that term actually means than I have. She's she's acting like she hasn't, but she, I think, has genuinely a better concept of what anarchism means than I do. I think that sometimes I still have a very fuck the man, let's burn the world down view of anarchism. And I know intellectually that that's not correct, but I don't think I've like totally unrooted that from my subconscious. So because of that, reading this article, I think really reshaped the way that I think about anarchism. I really enjoyed thinking about the first principles of a movement and how they're often unstated and they're sort of the philosophical underpinnings of what's going on. And thinking about the fact that there's power in naming what those principles are, especially when you're thinking about indigenous anarchism, which the author spent some time talking about the fact that in 2005, they felt as though there were only a a few key native voices in the movement for anarchism. I think maybe that's changed based off some of the articles that we saw later. But something that really struck me is that we have equal responsibility and equal duty to our extended family, which isn't just, you know, your typical, I would say, extended family in white society. It's actually that the idea that everything is alive, that everything that's worth interacting with sort of has a spirit and that one's extended family is more of who and what you interact with and honoring that life, especially when dealing with the land and thinking about that connection and the responsibilities and duties you have to others and to the land that you interact with, which I think is a concept that I've sort of been personally grappling with generally like, and, and an idea that I've been moving towards in my life naturally. And for me, it felt really powerful reading this article, having like, somebody who's much smarter than I am articulate things that I think I've been trying to articulate for probably close to two and a half years now. Thank you for that. I completely agree with your, your ideas about, or or your feelings, I guess, that have to do with grappling with the land and seeing everything as kind of animistic. That's something longtime listeners will know that I grew up in a new age, spiritual household. So like, that's not a new concept to me. But my delivery of that concept was completely appropriative because it was taken from traditions like Indigenous people and from Eastern traditions. And so getting it straight from the source is powerful. And through these articles, it was kind of easier to see how we can ethically participate in those traditions without appropriating them. But to Maggie's earlier point, so she brought up a great thing was that And it was that most people don't actually know what anarchism is. So (laughs) I'm going to give you a very simplified, probably not very smart definition. Essentially, anarchism means that there are no hierarchies. So all sorts of rules, all sorts of power structures are horizontal. And this is actually something that we see from the readings 
that may have been founded within Indigenous communities. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as we move through our readings. But basically, anarchism, there's different types. There's different like philosophies. You can be a philosophical anarchist, but maybe not a political anarchist. It's just no hierarchies. To Maggie's point that it's fuck the man, burn the world, I think it's funny that she said that because this article opens up with the the imagery of burning <laughs> and essentially says that we have to burn it all down before we can start again and then ends with that concept that the white man will leave eventually, we'll all die and kill ourselves out. And then indigenous people will come back to the land and start stewarding it again. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Mikey. Oh, I was just going to say, I think for me, the key difference between the image that I had in my mind, and I think that media t- portrays in anarchism a lot, and the image that this article opens up with, is that I think that in like this cartooned, essentially, version of anarchism in my head, it's like destruction for the sake of destruction, right? It's destruction as a symbol of anger and a visual burning of hierarchy. And I think that that image, the image that the author outlines touches on that a little bit, but it's way more destruction for the purpose of rebirth and going back to one's roots. And I think also probably relates to the fact that land management often means controlled burns and things like that. So I feel like the the image that this article opened up with of burning was really, really smart because it played on those preconceptive notions, but also showcased the ways in which the burn it all down mentality is right at the nugget of its core, but it doesn't go far enough until you're thinking about what comes afterwards. Yeah, I think maybe listeners might be familiar with Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And I think that's a helpful idea when thinking about dismantling and its role within leftist ideologies like anarchism, right? It's not necessarily destruction for the sake of destruction. And oh, sorry. Put your teacup down. All I can hear through your mic is rattling. Oh, sorry. You're all where, good. Where, where was I? Take me back. Can't control or can't dismantle the master's world with the master's tools. Yeah, so you can't dismaster. You can't dismant. Audre Lorde has a really great essay called "The Master's House," and in it, she posits that you can't dismantle the master's house with the ma- master's tools. And that's a concept that a lot of feminists are really familiar with. Audre Lorde is also a true leftist. (laughs) And that's a good way to think about leftist ideology when we're talking about destruction. There are a lot of different anarchists out there. A lot of them don't advocate for any violent means. I would say that most of them don't. But the idea is that our structure is so broken that we need to completely abolish it and create something new. So I also thought while Maggie was speaking that it might be helpful to just give people a little bit of an outline of this article. And so I think that the three big principles, the three things that we really need to focus on are one, Aragorn highlights for us the principles of just anarchism in general. Again, it's a really broad movement. There's a lot of people But they posit that it's direct action, which essentially just means that a person has to, it's anti-bureaucracy. A person has direct effect over whatever they're doing. Mutual aid, which is a concept that means that every, the community supports each individual. So during COVID, you may have seen a lot of mutual aid funds. 
And what that was doing was that it's not charity. People would donate food or it wouldn't, I guess it's not even donation based because the idea is that when that person falls on hard time, the person giving the money or the food, they too can receive this. So it's just a collective beneficial fund to help feed people. And that's a really integral part of anarchist work right now. And then also voluntary cooperation, which means that everything that we do, we have a choice to do. Anarchism is all about autonomy. So our cooperation, our input, our labor is something that we're actively choosing. Do you have any thoughts, Maggie? Yeah, sorry. There's a a truck going off in the back of my house. I was trying to wait it out for a sec. I thought it was my house. (laughs) Fuck you, truck. I think that what really struck me about those sort of principles is the fact that agency is so tied into everything that it's simultaneously a very individualistic sort of situation and that you have the choice over what you do, who you interact with. But also there is similarly a level of responsibility in that no matter what you do, you're contributing to the community, you're contributing to this mutual aid, and you're taking care of others, which I found was a really interesting play on some of the other articles that we were reading as well, which focus explicitly on the idea that it's not about the individual, it's about the collective and the collective includes, I mean, this article touches upon it too, but the collective includes more than just humanity, it includes all of the earth and all of its many forms. Yeah, that's a philosophy that in my current grad school work and just by reading, I'm personally grappling a lot with because I tend to be very individualistic by nature. I come from the US. It's just very inbred into me. But, or embedded, I guess, not inbred. (laughs) It's very embedded into me. But anarchism is, yeah, all about autonomy. I think what I'm coming to terms with, the more I learn about it, is that full autonomy can't really be given or societal autonomy can't be given without collective action. So it's autonomy within collectivist communities. And there's also an idea which Marx brings up that I think anarchists really co-opt, which is like each according to their ability or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm misquoting. So like we can each give what we have to give. We don't all have to give the same amount. So I think that that too is a very anarchist thought, right? We don't have to participate in everything, but we should all want to for the collective good. Yeah, because it's about building a world without scarcity. I feel like that's also one of the Marxist ideals that really then diagrams with anarchism as these articles have outlined it, but also especially how Aragorn was describing it. And I think anarchism actually predates Marx a little bit, but all of leftist philosophy as it's understood in modern day, they all build off of each other. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) modern anarchism and probably anarchism even from the 1930s and stuff was very heavily influenced by Marx. I also want to get into what Aragorn outlines as the principles of an indigenous anarchism. So Maggie already talked about some of this, but number one, everything is alive. A lot of indigenous cultures believe that everything has a purpose and maybe a spirit. They're all somewhat godly in a way. And I can't see Maggie, but she can let me know if I'm mischaracterizing this because she does more work with Indigenous people than I do. 
She, she doesn't okay, appear to going. be giving me a face. Okay. No, no, no. You're, you're good. Keep going. Uh, it, maybe godly might not be the right word, but like a, there's a spiritualism. There's a spirit to, to all objects. And I think as the author outlines objects that are worth interacting with. Yeah, everything has, and one of the things the author says too that's really cool and important is that if everything is alive, then nothing is an object, Mm -hmm. which is important because right now in our current structure, we objectify people pretty often. So if we see everything's inherent worth and aliveness, it's harder for us to mistreat it. Memory is another big important thing, which is really interesting to me as a librarian because some of the work that I'm looking at this semester has to do with epistemological or indigenous epistemological knowledge. And it's just interesting because there's a lot in in a lot of indigenous cultures, there's a lot of focus on oral storytelling and how to keep cultural memory alive. And this is a theme we'll see throughout all of our texts, this idea of memory. But when the white man came, right, we tended to A, have shorter memories because we wrote everything down. And B, we destroyed all of that cultural knowledge. And we didn't destroy it all because it still obviously exists, but we made a lot of attempts to destroy it in our efforts to colonize. So the idea of memory and culture and place and oral storytelling that we'll see throughout these texts is really interesting. And so I think it's an interesting principle if we're going to apply it to indigenous anarchism, and I really like it. And then it also talks about an anarchism of place. So the importance of being home, essentially, and of being autonomous in whatever place that you're in, which I think probably specifically applies to the fact that many Indigenous people were moved from their places and homes. And then also, we are a part of a family, as Maggie mentioned earlier, which relates to everything is alive. And some other texts that we're going to read that draw upon specific nations' cultural beliefs, it talks about how different creatures and different plants are understood to be a part of their their cultural family and about how they're teachers. And I think that that kind of relates to this concept of we are all family, right? It makes it a collectivist society. Everything that we interact with is a part of us and we should be trying to protect it. Yeah, I think that those are definitely the four key aspects that Aragorn outlines that sort of probably not, I I don't know that separates is the right word, but that like deepens in indigenous anarchism and sort of differentiates it, I guess, from white-led anarchism. I think, too, going off of memory, something that I think is really important is that memory and history, I think from a non-Native perspective, might be kind of easy to conflate, but I don't think that they're necessarily the same thing here. One of our authors, I don't think it was Aragorn, but it might have been, I'm sorry if it was, talks about the ways in which history books and history as we teach about it in a colonist culture obscures memory. And I think that to me, that was really interesting and something that I push up against a lot in my work as the curator for a historical society who has been honored to often work with Indigenous nations, which I'm not naming specifically for protection of myself, not because I don't honor them, just to be very, very clear. And when I'm at work, we are very specific, but I can't be here is that history and the way we think about history from 
our current societal lens that's obviously white dominated, white lens, etc. is it's supposed to be objective history, but isn't. It's all about interpretation and what your lens is on history. And memory is, I think, separate from that, both from what Aragorn outlines, but also from, I think, our own everyday experiences with memory. And that memory is a feeling and it's a lesson and it's something that we keep with us close to our hearts that we often pass down from person to person. And it's connected to history because it happened and it's gone and it feeds into larger cultural and societal things. But it's not necessarily a look at the cold, hard facts of a situation. Sometimes those will get infused in memory. But I think that what I really picked up from this piece is that memory is a value that you foster for yourself that is often fostered within your community and is therefore passed down. And I think in this context, largely through oral tradition instead of written tradition. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And that makes a lot more sense and helps put these pieces in context for me a little bit more, this idea of memory being something closer to your heart. That was at least what I picked up from it. So maybe that's wrong, but that was my interpretation. No, but I think that's important too, because one thing I noticed about the text that, and like I did, I did pick these texts deliberately, but I picked them mostly because they seemed like the most basic texts I could find on this concept. And with the exception of one text at the end that we're going to look at is all freely accessible to everyone. But one of the things I picked up from reading it is that for the most part, they're a little bit less linear and and cold, hard, fact-focused than what we typically see in more Western-centric texts, I'd say. I don't know. that That's interesting for me, and I'm going to uh, probably take that as I learn more about Indigenous knowledge. That's just been sort of my experience. I feel like that was re- in working with Indigenous peoples, not from an own voices perspective. I just, I don't know. I feel like it also really ties into that last text, which is a retelling, not a retelling. It's a, it's a written version of an Ashinabwe creation story. And to me, it's so, it feels so value-based, right? It's very much, this is the way that we should be thinking about and living in the world. And that's the memory that's passed on. And it's passed down through story, but stories can take a lot of different forms over the years. And sometimes they're very metaphorical and sometimes they're more personal and true to life for you. And I I thought the memory aspect was, to me, I think one of the biggest, maybe, and maybe this was just my biases coming into play, but for me, it felt like one of the biggest differences between indigenous anarchism and the anarchism that Aragorn was outlining. That's sort of the umbrella term. Okay, interesting. So let's, let's keep that in mind as we keep going. (laughs) So Our second text is about Land Back, and it's from Teen Vogue. Miss Maggie, do you have anything that that surprised you about this text or anything? It's pretty basic. It's by Teen Vogue, so you know it's written for teenagers. (laughs) And it just kind of outlines what Land Back is. Personally, I wasn't particularly surprised. I'm pretty familiar with Land Back through my work. I think that... For a lot of people, it's probably going to feel like a kind of radical idea, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. I think that the idea of ownership is so deeply 
rooted in especially white Western culture, that the idea of giving up is going to feel like, or like giving back land is going to feel like losing power in a very direct way and societal status. But in actuality, the land that we all live on is stolen and we need to move past just acknowledging the fact that we live on stolen land and actually doing something about that. And I think that a place of contention is that potentially non-Native people are going to worry, well, where am I going to go? You know, am I going to be displaced like this? Which is ironic considering the fact that that's what white non-Native settlers directly did to Indigenous people in the past. But really what I think the Teen Vogue article outlines and the people that that author interviewed really say is that this is a move to care for the land. It is just as much about saving the land from mismanagement as it is about Indigenous justice. And it's not necessarily about kicking people out of their homes directly. It's about taking care of this thing that's alive that we all live on. It's about taking care of this land that's alive that we all live on and getting it into hands that actually know how to manage it, which we know is true from a cultural perspective, as well as a a scientific climate change perspective. The article, yes, yes to what Maggie is saying. The article that we're talking about, by the way, is What is the Land Back Movement? A Call for Native Sovereignty, Native Sovereignty and Reclamation. And it's by Ruth Hopkins. Yeah, so I'm one of those people that didn't really understand land back very well. I knew it was a thing. I knew that it meant that indigenous people wanted land. They wanted their land that we stole. But I didn't really know what it entailed. And I think part of that, too, is because it's it can mean multiple things. It's not necessarily broadly defined. Mm-hmm. But through some of my classwork this semester, I'm getting a better chance to learn more about it. And the Teen Vogue article was kind of helpful to me too in that as well. But I I guess what I'm mostly taking away is that sovereignty is really important. So the Teen Vogue article really frames that as this is something necessary that we need to do because of climate change. I think that there's also probably a justice aspect to it as well. And mostly it would mean giving complete rights, giving complete power over to Indigenous people because we are on stolen land. And something that keeps coming back to me when I think about land back that really stuck with me, and I can't remember the text right now, but I promise I will cite it in the show notes. But one of the things I read in class recently said that in order to decolonize, we have to stop asking what happens to settlers. We can't even begin to address that question until we've restored sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So I guess it could be kind of rad. I mean, it is radical, right? Because it's calling kind of for, I mean, it's calling for us to completely cede our power. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that would look like in actuality, because there are so many things at play. There are a lot of Indigenous people who are also, you know, have white ancestors. And I don't know, I don't think that it would look that, I think it would look less scary than it sounds in reality. But I also think that the important thing is that in order to do something that's in order to restore justice, that's, that's just what we need to do. It's just, it just needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think even the Teen Vogue article outlines and talks about the fact that this work isn't 
going to be possible with our current colonized government and structure. That's what's perpetuated the stealing of this land. That's what's perpetuated the mismanagement of this land. And even with more Native peoples in high positions of power, like Deb Holland, and hopefully, I don't actually know what happened with the Charles F. Sam III nomination for being the director of the National Park Service. So apologies. But even in those cases, like with Indigenous peoples in some of the highest seats of government, we still can't see radical land back change until we see a dismantling of the colonistic government that put us in this position in the first place. Which I feel like, and one of the reasons why I wanted to include this in our discussion of Indigenous anarchism, can be a kind of anarchist perspective. We need to dismantle this so that we give, but I guess it isn't too, because we're, we're, we're saying that we need to give the power back to these people. And then they can decide whether they want to do hierarchies or whatever sort of structure that they want, which might not always be anarchistic. But yeah, we can't we can't dismantle the system and can't use the master's tools to, to dismantle it. It has to be completely starting over. I think, too, I don't know from what perspective it's addressed, but in Aragorn's article, that's kind of talked about the fact that in an anarchist society of any sort can only exist if we accept that other people aren't going to have the same values as we have and will mm-hmm. choose to live differently. Which, now we're getting kind of off track of our Indigenous topic, but like for me, as somebody who openly identifies as an anarchist, is kind of hard because I don't even want to live in the southern U.S., right? I don't want to live in any sort of culture or society where abortions aren't legalized. If I succeed in a society where healthcare is recognized, right? I don't, or if we have a full anarchist society, I don't want some people to be like, oh, well, internet isn't free here, but it's not our jobs to determine what is okay for other communities. And when we're looking at it from the U.S. standpoint, too, that's also really hard to reckon with because our current structure is that we have all these somewhat autonomous communities, states, And then we have a federal structure that oversees it and a Bill of Rights. And even though I am an anarchist, I tend to be like, yes, let's instill more rights. Let's instill more rights on a national level. So that's something interesting for people who might be considering anarchism or who are interested in anarchist philosophies for us to collectively think about. How do we reckon with the fact that other people have different values and that's okay? (laughs) But to get back to the text a little bit, so we talked about land back. I also want to explore what Indigenous anarchism looks like. And so we have two texts to explore this. One is an article from The Nation, and it's called In the Navajo Nation, Anarchism Has Indigenous Roots. And essentially it goes over one group's efforts to start implementing anarchist methodology on a reservation. And they have a lot of success with it. And they also claim, and I guess it's not even claim, they also state that their ideas are a part of something that I'm trying to find so I can quote directly. Right. They're a part of a Navajo idea. So I think it's Ke. Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm sticking with. And I'm really sorry to the Navajo Nation if I'm mispronouncing that. But this concept... 
is all about the world being interconnected, which is what we kind of talked about a little bit in our Aragorn article about having everyone be family and everything being alive, although this concept is specific to the Navajo Nation. And so that interconnectedness, this article posits, is what allows the people doing this anarchistic work to be successful at it. And one of the cool things that they say in this article that really stood out to me is that anarchism right now is thought to be primarily European. We use a lot of European language to describe it, and our central theorists that to the roots theorists all happen to be European, generally speaking. But a person quoted in this article, who I think is called Benali, but I could be saying that wrong, so I'm sorry, says that all of these ideas were coming from people who came to the came to North America and saw the way that these indigenous people were living and then wrote about it. And then that's what would have informed people like Engels, Marx, or Bakunin's work. Because they read those, they read the journals that were talking about these different communities and indigenous societies, and then took from that and made these theories of communism or theories of anarchism, which I just thought was really interesting. So They talk about mutual aid and different efforts that they're doing within their Navajo reservation. And I just thought it was really cool because it's kind of a very modern, sort of smaller scale, but also large scale because it's happening all over the reservation. Example of anarchistic action. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that the focus on mutual aid was really, really, really important, especially later in the article where they talked about the ways in which reservation police would often actively try and thwart them when they would just have trucks full of food and were trying to make sure people were okay. At the very height of the pandemic, where the Navajo Nation specifically was hit extraordinarily hard, largely because of just negligence from the US government. And what drove all of this was this idea of family, of caring, of community, of living in a world without scarcity, essentially. Just inaction. Which is so nice. See, anarchism isn't scary. This is uh, Rebel Girls Book Club Propaganda Hour. (laughs) Anarchism isn't scary, guys. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's so true. I mean, Benali, uh, one of Benali's quotes that really stuck with me was, every time capitalism fails, we land on socialism. We land on anarchism to take care of us. Because care is so at the center of what this work is. It's about being able to live a healthy, happy, dignified life, to be cared and cared for. That's it. That's the message. That's all we want. Yes. And everything capitalism doesn't stand for. <laughs> everything most Western societies don't stand for, which I think kind of, if, you, if you're ready, leads us to our last topic. And do we want to start with the preface, or can I just jump into the the differences between Western and and Indigenous society as outlined by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is the author of a book that I've actually heard some buzz about that came out in 2013. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And Robin Wall Kimmerer is a really cool person because she got a PhD in botany and she is a citizen of Potawatomi. Poda, yeah, Poda, 
Potawatomi. Potawatomi. Let me look at what you're saying so I can see your mouth. Potawatomi. Yeah, there you go. Potawatomi Nation. Yes. Thank you. I'm probably also butchering that, but I think that those are the the very least the letters in the word. (laughs) Yeah, I have, it's hard to, yeah, yeah. I have some um, disabilities, but it's like, I'm not saying that to be ableist or anything. Like I actually, I have some, some issues with that. And I did as a small child. They tried to help me out. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's just, it's something I need to acknowledge while also trying to be a good person, you know? (laughs) Every time something like this happens, I just hear Harmony in the back of my head shrieking, distressed last season going, I just want to be a good person, but I can't pronounce anything. It's true. And it's really, it's hard for me to hear things too. Like, it's a whole it's a whole thing but it's okay i'm trying and that's all we can ask for and i'm I'm sorry everyone who has to hear me (laughs) anyway so she's a citizen of potawatomi got it thank you nation and she wrote this great book which is all about taking plant knowledge and and combining it with indigenous knowledge and her scientific knowledge in order to spread stewardship among people living in North America. And so we read, Maggie and I read the preface of this book in the first chapter, which is called Sky Woman Falling. And one of the things that really, really struck me that comes up in Sky Woman Falling is this idea of Sky Woman. And Kimura goes into this whole creation story about who Sky Woman was. She was the first woman. She fell from the sky and then she worked with various animals to do something. What what did she work to do? She essentially worked, she planted plants on Turtle Island to feed the animals. Yeah, and created and to feed the animals and, and, and nourish the animals and like essentially created the ecosystem as we think of it, but she didn't feel ownership of it. It was a reciprocal situation. Right. Yes. So she landed here and there were all of these animals and I think that she needed dirt in order to plant her seeds. And so they all tried to help her get the dirt. And one finally succeeded and sacrificed his life to do it. It was a muskrat. It muskrat. It was very sad. And then she made Turtle Island, which is the indigenous word. And I I shouldn't say the indigenous word, but a lot of different indigenous people from various places. This creation story is primarily surrounding the Great Lakes, but a lot of indigenous people refer to North America and that big land mass as Turtle Island. So she was cool. She doesn't feel any ownership. She's younger, she's newer to the land than all of the animals, so she really believes that she can learn from them, and they're her friends, and she was a good guest. She brought seeds and gave them something in return for their help. But our story, and I say our as in Maggie and I's, two white peoples, (laughs) comes from the West, and it's all about Eve. That's our creation story, right? So our creation story, our first woman ate some fruit and then got kicked out of paradise, and she doesn't actually belong to Earth or the land. She's just here waiting to go back to paradise when she dies. And so it's these two very different ideas about how we can interact with the world around us. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I forgot my point. I forgot what motivated this point. I'm just rambling now. But <laughs> help me out. Well, I think that it was it was a really interesting juxtaposition because she starts, Kimmerer starts in the preface with talking about the fact that she's teaching a class of climate scientists who 
when she gives them a survey, finds out that they feel like humans and the earth really only interact negatively. They're thinking about climate change. They're thinking about pollution. And they feel like they're, the median answer to whether humans and the earth interact positively is that they don't. So she's offering up these two stories as a way to showcase what reciprocity means, I think. But also, I think, contextualizes why for white settler culture, reciprocity isn't maybe as ingrained in all of us. It's not the creation stories that we're taught and fostered with because Eve is kicked out of the garden and also spends her the rest of her life, as Kimmerer talks about it, trying to find home, trying to find place. And it's not, she doesn't find it in the land. And she views the land as sort of a means to an end of survival so that she can get back to her home, which is heaven. So there's this real separation between us as as white people who you know grew up with this creation myth and the idea of home and therefore i think the the idea of duty and responsibility towards the earth it's not towards the earth it's to this like omniscient all-knowing god who's going to eventually let you come home if you meet the commandments because i think that another interesting juxtaposition that kimmerer talks about is the fact that in ashinaabwe culture there isn't rules or commandments you have thoughts and values that guide you, but you have to create that map for yourself. And that map looks different depending on who you are and where you're growing up and what era it even is. And the one thing that I think that these two stories really talk about is that one of those core values is reciprocity with others talking about braiding the sweetgrass and how the sweetest way to do that is between two people and it's work between you and people you love and the land. And also thinking about the fact that everyone has something to bring to the table, which to me really made me think about the idea of everything being alive. Like the earth has so much to teach us and so much to give us. And if we just can give a little, we can get so much back if we can work together in harmony. It's so pretty. I think that's a really good point. And to your point too, you mentioned earlier this idea of memory and the idea of creation stories serving as a part of memory. So one of the things that really struck me about this text was this idea that the creation stories served as original instructions for how to live on the land and how to care for it, right? And so us white people, we have bad instructions and that's why we abuse the land, <laughs> is essentially what was said. These instructions, as Maggie pointed out, have to change as our world evolves. But I like this idea of the original instructions. And one of the things that Kimura really hones in on is the idea that these instructions could come back, right? That they don't have to just be prescriptive for the first people. They could be our instructions towards a better future. But she does that really well because she also encourages that we and this is interesting from an information science standpoint. Sorry, y'all, about to nerd out. She also really encourages that we take the context of what we've got going on in order to apply those constructions, right? Which, when we're talking about information literacy, now it's about to go into information science nerdiness. One of the big things being talked about right now is that in order to be truly information literate, you have to really hone in on context and construct meaning. All authority is constructed. Nothing has absolute meaning. It's all about what's going on around it, right? About the different cultures that we're in, the different relationships we have. That's what forms our meaning. So that's pretty cool. 
Because she took that and she was like, yeah, this has to do with our instructions. Our instructions aren't absolute. They have to be informed by our meaning. But also look at these instructions. I think that these would be really, really helpful right now. And another thing she really honed in on, not to blab too much, is the idea that each individual thing is autonomous within the system, which I think goes back to Maggie's earlier point about this sort of tension between autonomy and collectivism that seems to be going on from an anarchistic perspective. And I think that it kind of reaffirms my previous statement that in order to be truly autonomous, in order for us all to have the most autonomy possible without harming one another, we need to live in some sort of collectivist society. Yeah, I think that that's totally right. Sorry, I don't have anything smart to add to that, but I I agree. <laughs> okay, oh, do we have anything else we want to say about these texts, Maggie? Collectivism is good. Take care of the earth, please. I don't want to die. Yeah, I'm excited to someday read when I have a little bit of time. Sweet braiding. Yeah, braiding sweet grass. Yeah. That will be exciting. Do you have anything that you want to leave listeners with about Thanksgiving? A lot of us are probably going to go home and see our families. It's doubtful that a lot of us are just going to convince our families to stop celebrating Thanksgiving, even though we're celebrating mass murder. Yeah, what are are some ideas that maybe we can pose? So I've been thinking a lot about impact recently and collective impact and how we can offset sometimes, I think, an impact that we feel like we don't have, like a negative impact that we feel like we don't have a lot of power to change in that moment, like our families celebrating Thanksgiving. And I think that one way to offset that impact is to actually try and meaningfully engage with the tribe or nation, depending on where you live and what their preference is, whose land that you live on, and see how you can support them. Many of them really rely on donations from people all over the place to offer basic benefits like healthcare and other tribal services to tribal members. And just learn, even if it's one thing, which is that you learn what their preferred land acknowledgement is and start really grappling with the fact that you live on stolen land. If you're a family that maybe says grace before Thanksgiving, which mine isn't, but I'm always a speech maker. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe try and work a land acknowledgement into your Thanksgiving meal, work a conversation into that, into your Thanksgiving meal, because I think that as we've been talking about kind of recently, words plus direct action mean a lot. So if you can make a donation while simultaneously making your family think even just for a few minutes about the fact that Thanksgiving is celebrating mass murder and genocide and stealing the land, but in a way that probably won't feel super attacking through a land acknowledgement, I think that you're probably going to start to offset the impact. And that's not enough for forever in your work with, I think, decolonization. But if you're really new to this work, I would say start thinking about how you offset your negative impact and follow the instructions of the people whose land you specifically live on because they're out there and the indigenous nations whose land you live on will tell you how to engage in a positive way if you just Google it. (laughs) I mean, I want to push back a little bit on that sentiment, though, because I live on the East Coast, right? And there are indigenous nations here. The land for the people I specifically live on, those people 
even though they exist here, are primarily located in Oklahoma now. So there aren't a lot of prescriptions for me. So do you have any suggestions for people who can't easily Google how they should be helping their specific people? I would go more regionally than that. And I would also say that even though they live in Oklahoma now, their native ancestral lands are where you live and a donation to that tribe, even if they feel physically far away, is still an important way to acknowledge the fact that you are living on their ancestral land. Well, thank you, Maggie. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, Next week, we're going to be back with... Oh, the birthday book tag, because... While we're recording this, it's very close to my birthday, and this co- and this that episode will come out right after Harmony's birthday. So, oh wow, so fun! Okay, yeah, right. that's it for now, folks. Bye. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to Anchor.fm/rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.